podcast has bad words. <laughs> Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. Now. While quarantined, Ryan and I have been using this time to do something special. Uh, not only did we, we finished our next book, which is called Love People, Use Things, which will be out early 2021, and I cannot wait for you to read this book. But also, each day while quarantined in our homes, Ryan and I have both been calling up some friends, also some friends of the podcast, and talking to them for about 10 or 15 minutes, just these short but meaningful conversations about how they are coping and how some of them are even thriving during this pandemic. It's a, it's a bunch of different perspectives, and we've been recording these quarantine conversations, which is what we've been calling them. Uh, we're recording them with our, our friends' permission, of course. And we've been releasing one a day over on the Minimalist Private Podcast on Patreon. You can listen to all 40 days of quarantine for free if you're a podcast supporter over at theminimalists.com slash support. Now, today, I wanted to share three of these important conversations with you here on this podcast episode. So even if you're not a podcast supporter, you can still get some value from these conversations. I'll tell you what. I think this pandemic is really putting things in perspective for many of us. We, we finally understand that an economy that's predicated on exponential growth isn't a healthy economy. It's a vulnerable one. I mean, if an economy collapses when people buy only their essentials, then it was never as strong as we pretended. When it comes to simple living, the most recent minimalist movement gained popularity online in the aftermath of the 2008 crash. People were yearning for a solution to their newly discovered problem of, of debt and overconsumption. Unfortunately, over the past dozen years, we've once again grown too comfortable. But the enemy isn't only consumerism now, it is decadence and distraction both material and not. Amid the panic of the pandemic, I've noticed many people grappling with the question that Ryan and I have been attempting to answer over the last decade. What is essential? Of course, that answer is highly individual. It's different for you than it is for me, than it is for the next person. And too often, we, we, we conflate consensual items with both non-essential items and junk. You know, in our free ebook, it's called uh, The Minimalist Rule Book, 16 Rules for Living with Less, Ryan and I, we tried to delineate all three categories, essential items, non-essential items, and junk, with something we call the no-junk rule. You can download that ebook for free over at theminimalists.com slash rulebook. But let me break down the no junk rule for you 
right here on this podcast. Everything you own can be placed into three piles, essential, non-essential, and junk. Essentials. The, these are the, the few possessions that, um, that we own that are necessities, that, the things we can't live without, food, shelter, clothes, etc. While the specifics change for each person, most of our needs, our true needs, are universal. Now there's a second category, what I would call non-essentials. Now people often think of non-essential as though it's junk. We shouldn't own anything that's not essential, and I don't think that's true. I, I think in an ideal world, in fact, most of the things we own would fit in the non-essential pile. These are the objects we want in our lives because they add value. Strictly speaking, I don't need a couch. If you're watching this on video, you can see the couch behind me here. I don't need the couch. I could live without the couch, right? I don't need the dining room table that's in my living room. I don't need the, the dresser in, in my bedroom. But these items enhance, amplify, or augment my experience of life. They, they make life better. Now, the third category is junk. And sadly, most of our things belong in this pile. These are, are the artifacts that we like, or more accurately, we, we think we like. But they don't actually serve a purpose or bring us joy. You know, the average American home contains an overabundance of stuff, more than 300,000 items in it, and most of it is junk. Now, while all this, this junk, it often masquerades as indispensable, it actually gets in the way of a life that is worth living. And so the key is to get rid of the junk to make room for everything else. Now, right now, during this, this crisis, during this emergency, not only must we jettison the junk, but many of us are forced to temporarily deprive ourselves of non-essentials, those things that add value to our lives during regular times but aren't necessary during a crisis. But if we can do this, if we can discover what is truly essential in our lives, and we can eventually reintroduce the things that are non-essential more slowly, then we can get rid of all the junk. We can figure out what is important and what isn't. Now, I hate to complicate matters, but I have to note that essential changes as we change as well. What was essential for me or for you five years ago may not be essential now. And in a crisis, what was essential five days ago may not be essential now. And so we must continually question, adjust, and let go. This is especially true today when, when a week feels like a month and a month feels like a lifetime. With the, the current financial crisis and also a renewed search for meaning that many of us are experiencing, I think our society will be coping with some critical realities in the not-too-distant future. Many new norms have been established during this crisis, and others will form in its wake. Many of us will attempt to cling to the past, to return to normal. But that's like struggling to hold a, a block of ice in our hands. Once it melts... It's gone. Now, I've been asked by many people, even on these quarantine conversations, uh, when is this going to, to turn around? 
And frankly, I hope it doesn't. Turning around presupposes that we return to the past, that we return to a normal, a quote, normal, that wasn't working for most people, at least not in a meaningful way. And while I don't know what the future holds, I hope we emerge from this uncertainty with a new normal, one that is predicated on intentionality and community rather than just consumer confidence. To get there, we must simplify again. We must clear the clutter to find a path forward. We must find the hope beyond the horizon. I had a quarantine conversation recently with one of my mentors, a man named, a businessman named Carl Widener, and he showed me the Chinese characters for the word crisis. I believe the word is weiji. Uh, and the two characters, they, they supposedly signify danger, way, and ji signifies opportunity. So danger and opportunity. And, and I think there are arguments actually among linguists as to whether or not the, the, that second character, ji, actually means opportunity. But I think the analogy is still apt. A crisis, like the one we have here right in front of us, exists at the intersection of danger an opportunity. And we are undoubtedly in a crisis. A heightened sense of danger lingers in the ether right now. I think most of us feel it. But opportunity is also in the air. Surrounded by danger, we have the opportunity to, as my friend Joshua Becker says, use these days to reevaluate everything. Maybe we needed this. Let us not waste this opportunity to reevaluate everything, to let go, to start anew. The best time to simplify was during the past decade. The second best time is right now. I hope you enjoy the following three quarantine conversations I had with Dan Savage talking about sex and dating apps during a pandemic. I'm a giant fan of his podcast, the, the Savage Lovecast. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. I hope you check out his podcast as well. He gives great advice, relationship advice, sex advice, etc. Also, I had a conversation that you're about to hear with my former partner, the artist Colleen McCullough, who some of you know from Everything That Remains. I wrote about her in there. She's talking about how she and I talked about how she plans on using art to make sense of a sort of post-coronavirus world, how to make sense of the world right now during this pandemic. And also, I had a controversial conversation. This one sparked a lot of controversy among the people commenting uh, on Patreon, the, the Patreon supporters who are supporting this. I think it may have been the most controversial, controversial conversation I had. This one was with T.K. Coleman talking about freedom. You're going to hear that at the end of this podcast. And you can find 37 other quarantine conversations and so many other things over at theminimalists.com slash support. All right, y'all. Enjoy these quarantine conversations. I'm trying to capture some of these conversations. They, they've been very sort of casual. It's not the typical you know, podcasting. We're all, we're all stuck at home trying to figure out, navigate our way through all of this. And um, I want to talk to you just about a few things about about sex, since since that's your wheelhouse. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, you know, th- there are 
I estimate there are probably like five different types of people right now dealing with this. Uh, there are single people. There are single people with kids. There are couples. There are couples with kids. And then there are sort of, there's the other category, poly relationships, et cetera. <laughs> and um, I think- and you, can play, you can more finely slice the couples category. How so? Well, there are couples who only being apart made it possible for them to remain together. There are couples um, where the marriage is sexless, but only one person is disinterested or not interested in sex. And they've been fobbing the other person off with a lie about being too overworked or stressed out or busy to have any energy for sex. And that question is now being called. Uh, yeah, the, there are couples, people keep saying that on Twitter as if couples have it made. And we see domestic violence skyrocketing uh, reports right now. Uh, mm. So don't assume the couples are, you know, banging away at each other and enjoying all of this bonus time. Uh, that is my, the uh, <laughs> well, my, my wife and I have been taking this is advice and, and spending more time on our knees than on the internet. <laughs> it's good advice. Uh, yeah, yes, indeed. And, um, you know, I, uh, actually, I, I would say that the, her and I are thriving, especially the weeks where we don't have our daughter. I have a stepdaughter uh, with my wife. And so um, I'm actually experiencing both sides of the, the, the couples with kids and then couples without kids as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I've noticed a, a distinct difference. And, and you, you take for granted a lot of things that um, I guess a lot, of, a lot of things come to the, to the forefront right now. And um, Sp spending every waking hour with your kids uh, tends to be quite challenging on on a relationship. Uh, absolutely true. Um, I think it's important for all of us to remember right now that not to compare what we're all going through to a vacation, but if you remember ever taking an extended vacation with your partner, or your partner and your kids, um, it tends to highlight everything you love about your kids and your partner, but also at the same time, uh, closely after or mixed in together, everything you can't stand about your own kids and your own partner and those moments um, are, you know, you have to, when you're in that moment where you are really focused on what drives you up the wall, you have to be a little bit zen about it, take a deep breath and try to remind yourself of what you liked about them or love about them, which usually, you know, on a vacation was what was going on 10 minutes ago as opposed to what's going on right now. Well, let's talk about what single people should should be thinking about right now. It's, it's very tempting to want to hop on you know, dating apps or or you find past relationships at this point. But of course, with the, uh, this, this virus that's out there, this seems like one of the worst things we could do. Uh, it's fine to hop on a dating app. It's fine to hop on a hookup app. It's not fine to date or hook up uh, in person, face to face. You know, we've had some scandals with people's uh, dirty images or sex messages uh, being made public against their will. And often people say, well, you shouldn't have taken those pictures. And what's been hilarious to watch is public health departments, state public health departments urging people uh, to hook up online, to, to masturbate together uh, via Zoom or perhaps a platform with better security uh, and, you know, risk taking those photos because the risk of taking those photos uh, is less than uh, the risk of getting on a, getting in a car, driving across town, meeting a stranger who's not part of your, you know, uh, quarantine pod or uh, lockdown pod. Um, and that would put you at danger, them at danger, anybody else you might encounter at danger. So yeah, hooking, I, I'm the like, have a hookup. You never know. My husband and I have been together 25 years. That was a one night stand 25 years ago. I'm very pro uh, impulse sex and hookup sex. 
Uh, and I'm also pro open relationships and pro polyamory, but not now. Uh, polyamory uh, canceled for the moment, except on a group chat. I have a good friend of mine who is polyamorous and this sort of, I, I think, destroyed that relationship for him. And he and his wife uh, were both dating other people uh, together. And and I'm getting ready to talk to him on one of these calls, actually. And mm-hmm. I think it brought some some sort of abandonment issues to the forefront. I think I think right now, if there is the some sort of partner, you mean what's that? The second dairy partner. Yeah, the, yeah. The I think dating. they weren't first priority. And obviously, what that exposed is for you know, and I don't want to speak. You're going to talk to him in a minute. But what it might have exposed for those people is that they were settling for being the secondary partner when what they what their heart really wanted was to be the primary, and this just made it you know, too searingly clear that they weren't and probably never would be the primary and they had to bolt. Well, let me ask you this. What what does it mean to be GGG in the time of quarantine? (laughs) How is it different now? Well, GGG stands for good giving and game, uh, which is something I coined in my column decades ago. Uh, What everyone should be good and bad, you know, practice those skills. Uh, Giving of, you know, pleasure without always an expectation of an immediate return. You want to be an indulgent lover and a uh, game up for anything within reason. Everyone gets to have their boundaries and limits. Um, to be GGG, I think right now just requires everyone to be very, very, very patient with each other. Um, you know, if you are a couple that's together and you have a great and strong sexual connection, and there's a lot of perfectly wonderful couples out there uh, where the relationships are romantic friendships, companionate marriages, and I think those are perfectly valid. And we shouldn't look at a relationship and say, if it's sexless, it's broken or there's something wrong. We should look at a relationship and say, is everybody happy? Uh, you know, if, one, if it's sexless and one person is miserable, that's not going to work. But if it's sexless and everybody's happy, great. But to be GGG right now, my God, we all need distractions. That's why Netflix is booming. That's why Tiger King exploded. Um, that's why, you know, we're all online and hoping that our favorite artists will release some tracks and we're encouraging movie studios uh, to release films uh, to streaming platforms so we don't have to wait for a year to see them or longer. And so now is also the time to distract yourself with, you know, as well as you can in your house without having to go anywhere, without having to go to a sex shop and buy anything, indulge each other's fantasies and explore. If you have a strong sexual connection, uh, lean into it at this moment. There's no better distraction than a dick in your mouth. (laughs) I may say that on your podcast. (laughs) You can definitely say it. Uh, You're very immediate about a blowjob. You're really not elsewhere at that moment, usually. Yeah, I certainly hope not. I I can tell you that that my my wife and I have uh, certainly been thriving during this time. And and we've definitely sort of leaned into it, so to speak. Would, Would you think that is, uh, I don't know if maybe even have some data, uh, that th- there's more or less sex happening right now during during the quarantine between couples. Um, there's some studies uh, going on right now. I would encourage folks to follow Dr. Justin Lay Miller on Twitter. He's a sex researcher and writer and is incredibly prolific. And he's leading a study uh, out of the Kinsey Institute on how people are behaving sexually. At the start, people predicted there would be a quarantine baby boom in nine months but what we've seen out of Wuhan uh, and other cities that were locked down in China, that when the lockdown eased, people were rushing to divorce lawyers mm. and to court to dissolve marriages. It was a divorce boom after the lockdown. Um, there is research that shows that uh, something that's predictive of a successful long-term partnership is time away from each other, is not actually being each other's best friends, letting somebody else play that role and being able to come together at the end of the day 
and have had different experiences, something to talk about, something to share, to be happy to see each other again. Uh, and when you kick that out, when you take that out of a lot of relationships, when you remove that time away from each other, um, some people are going to emerge from quarantine not excited to be together at all, even in a, even uh, you know, when they don't have to be together all the time in the future. So, you know, people are into their partners. I, I bet my hunch would be they're having a lot of sex uh, and probably, hopefully, some more adventurous sex than they might have had time for in the past. Uh, but people who don't like their partners, man, uh, they're probably not having sex and they're probably emailing divorce lawyers right now. So maybe this is bringing to the forefront whatever was going on underneath. And if there's potential for a better relationship there, maybe that is being brought to the forefront. Or maybe if if things were going to blow up, now is the time that that's going to get magnified as yeah, well. Now is the reckoning. You know, if, if the relationship was good, uh, quarantine is probably going to make it better. If the relationship had fissures or, or fatal flaws, uh, quarantine is probably going to make that relationship worse. And my heart goes out to people who are enduring domestic violence at a time when it's almost impossible to flee or get away. It's a it's a growing um, tragedy. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And and you know, we often don't think about that when we're thinking about couples. We're talking about sex and, and obviously trying trying to be uh, a bit light lighthearted here. But at the same right. time, we've we, we've got to we've recognize very quickly from uh, cocksucking to domestic violence. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's it's all right. It's uh, it, it's acknowledging reality. Uh, let me speaking of acknowledging reality. What do you recommend that couples do to maintain their autonomy at, at a time like this? You know, one of the things uh, that Terry and I have always kind of joked about is that we're very good at being alone together, um, you know, in the same room, in the same house. Uh, he'll be playing a video game or, uh, you know, texting with friends and I'll be reading a book or vice versa. And we're able to, you know, give each other some space and time, even if we're, you know, thrown together in close physical proximity uh, for a long time. And I think that's a really important skill. Uh, some people need to need seem to need constant engagement from their partner to constantly be the focus. You're just going to exhaust your partner, uh, and they're going to be anxious to get away from you if you're constantly needy. Learn to dig down inside yourself and find a place where you can be still and quiet uh, and disengaged, but together. I think it's a great place to end it. Dan, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I um I I still have so many people ask me about you because I Really? I wrote about you in in that book that a lot of people read. Yeah. I've re- and, I read that. <laughs> and um I mean, they, they it's a they always ask a very expansive question like how is Colleen? And I I don't I never know how to answer that. So so I guess maybe I could start by asking you, like, like how is how is how should I respond to that question? Or if someone's wondering that right now and they read everything that remains. Um, well, I'll tell you that actually somebody came through my line once when I was working at Trader Joe's with your book, like in hand, <laughs> and I was like, "I'm Colleen," <laughs> and they were like, "Did, did you what? say spoiler alert?" <laughs> no, I think I might have asked them like what chapter they were on, but I was like, "I'm Colleen." And they were just like dazed, you know, it was like a, like I had like a brush with like fame or something. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I guess you can just say she's well, (laughs) I don't, 
know, like, um, I don't know, I think good. But yeah, it is it is um, funny that people still ask about me. I didn't ever expect that. No, neither did I. I remember when I when I went out on the road with that book in like 2014, and we did 119 cities. And and as people had a chance to read it, they were that was like one of the big questions. Like after the events, we would do. Well, it was kind hey, of a t- cliffhanger. T- it was kind of a cliffhanger. Just saying. We, the whole book was was meant to be a cliffhanger. Um, but yeah, I mean, they would ask, and and sometimes not so kind ways. Like, hey, what happened to that relationship you really fucked up? Oh boy. And. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's uh, uh, next question. Um, but hey, the, the the reason I wanted to talk to you today was um, uh, your art. Y- y- well, art, but your art in particular. Okay. It, it feels to me like like your collages have been um, preemptively cataloging what's going on right now for the last yeah. 2,500 days. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was it's almost as as though you were you were uh, inadvertently predicting um a pandemic um i don't know there's something weird uh, i don't mean weird in a bad way i've actually heard you describe your own art as weird um there's something jarring and and thought provoking and um sometimes dread inducing but also mm-hmm. like hysteria like the good kind of like laugh out loud hysteria in in your collages and sometimes all of that happens in in one in one collage yeah um by the way congratulations you've been doing it for 2500 days i just saw that on on your instagram account yeah well i i actually i mean i i actually did stop in like october so i got to 2502 days um and I can I can talk about what happened with that, like why why I stopped. But um, but yeah, I I, um, I did it consecutive. I didn't miss a day for two thousand five hundred and two days, which is kind of crazy. Um, I did it throughout grad school, which was sort of like the gauntlet being thrown to like continue it when you're doing something that's also takes a lot of time and energy. Um, but yeah, like I think to me, collage is a really interesting medium because it sort of picks apart all the stuff in the world, like just all the onslaught of media that you're constantly seeing. And for me, collage is kind of a way to make sense of it through my hands. And so um, that's kind of the original intention I set out to do like ages ago. And then it kind of progressed. And like, as I, I've sort of progressed and developed like as an artist. um, Yeah, I've definitely think that collage is like a method for just like gaining psychic abilities, like in the world. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I don't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, I I, I think that it it is like, um, you know, there's like kind of on the pulse of things, even when I'm using kind of older images and um, vintage magazines, there's like a way that things I see collage just parts fit together in a way that yeah are able to tell a story that is sort of um, imbued with this like inherent language that we constantly see in media or um, you know photography um, or our selfies or our cell phones um, yeah and so I guess that that was that's kind of evolved over the years and um, over the course of like the last year as I finished grad school um, and continued like the daily practice um, I started to sort of become a little bit disillusioned with like the creative practice and just like the like I just started feeling like consistently overwhelmed by the amount of media in a way that was new. Um, and Which I think media in particular, like I mean, I just all media like social media news. Um, it just it just felt like and like 
like I've said it many times, like accelerated capitalism. Like it feels like it felt like things were just like accelerating for a long time. And I would, you know, it wasn't just that I could like look at my phone once in a day. It was like I noticed myself like picking it up every few minutes. Um, and so it was like this this kind of like continuous um, taking in of media. And collage was like a way of me kind of sorting that out and giving and giving something back to the world. Um, and I guess um I started realizing just how fatigued I was by it Um, Mm. and just really like the level in which it in itself became instead of something that was like that meditative space where I could use and move my hands. It became this like thing that I was just trying to fit into this like really busy schedule. Um, And I and I really like had the urge to pull back and sort of protect that Um, and and, like not have my creativity be like a one note. You know what I mean? Like um, like not just that I am using like have this one outlet for my creativity to really try and find new ways that I could be creative or new ways that maybe my daily practice could continue outside of like the public sphere. Um, And so and that was like a really scary shift. Um, Are you doing improv still? I'm doing improv like just kind of like with friends for fun. So I don't really have that um, outlet as of now. The Chicago scene is like kind of it's great, but it's also kind of intense. So um, so yeah, after I finished grad school, I kind of just wanted a break from things. Um, So yeah, I've actually gotten really into cooking, (laughs) which I've always really loved cooking. But to me, that's like something where it's a different way to use my creativity. Um, and just like trying well, it feels, to, it feels to me like there's, there's a connection between the, the improv and the collages, oh, in a totally. way. not, not a direct connection, but, but there's, there's something there, but I can't really put my, my finger on it. Well, I mean, both of them, you know, like the core principle in improv is yes. And, and that's, I think like how you build any collage, like is you see something and you know, it's not like you're inherently like yesing every image you see, but like there's something in a part of an image that would catch my eye for whatever reason. And I most of the time couldn't and I still can't articulate it. Um, oh, that's fascinating. And I would then, think of so collage. So it's like you oh, see it, that it, thread. I, I think of your collage is sometimes as like this, the, the, the yes and thing, but but maybe the opposite of that sometimes, like the no but. Like you start with all this chaos and you're trying to make sense out of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or as my therapist would say, yes, like both. <laughs> <laughs> or no both. You know what I mean? So like, can it be both? Like, can it be yes and no? Uh, and yeah. um, so I don't. It I'm, is and, and it isn't. Yeah. And I think that like in, in it, that can change from one day to the next or even like one portion of a collage to the next portion, you know, the next sort of area of a composition. Um, the accelerated capitalism thing uh, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think that's that's really coming to the forefront right now. We're, we're finally learning that. An economy that's that's predicated on on never-ending GDP growth uh, isn't actually a healthy economy. Yeah. It's yeah. it's extremely vulnerable. Mm-hmm. If your economy collapses when people buy only what they need, as opposed yeah. to what they you know, all of the, the the luxuries and and extravagances, if the, if it collapses when we buy only what we need, then it was never as strong as we pretended it was. And and I think now we're at, we're at a point. And, and so I guess. What I'd like to figure out from you is is you, where do we go from here, and how do how do you how do you use your art to sort of comment on that or illuminate that? I mean, I think you. I think for me as an artist, like it's really important to cause trouble. 
Um, mm. And, and you know, and I'll just say, like, I, I live in Chicago and I came to Chicago to go to graduate school to get my master's of fine art. Um, I went to Columbia Col- College, Chicago. I got a full scholarship. I had every intention in becoming a professor and helping the next generation of artists um, kind of talk about these issues and think about ways in which art can change things. And once I got in the system, I realized that I I did, did not like higher education for the arts at all. Um, and in fact, I would, um, I, I taught a couple undergraduate classes and realized that in fact, that is not at all the trajectory that I'm headed down because I think that it's part of the problem. Um, but I do, because I, because of, um, I think that the student loan situation specifically with the arts is quite predatory right now. And I actually think that that will be one of the first, um, aspects of higher ed that collapses. And I think that will happen probably as a result of COVID-19, um, I think so too. I think I think people we're really being exposed to this right now. Kids yeah. are, are going to be home for months, and they're like, totally. "Wait, I'm paying sixty thousand dollars to oh, learn yeah. via Zoom. What am I yeah. doing?" Yeah, yeah, and like, and actually, what I ended up doing, which I found myself doing, is like my classes ended up just being like group, like I wouldn't say group therapy, but just like I wanted to like kind of my students to get the most value out of my courses they possibly could because I know that some so like so many of them were paying so much money for them. Um, and so it ended up being much wider scope than just the topic I was teaching. Um, but I couldn't in good conscience, like continue with that career path. So for me, um, one way that I wanted to talk about these changes is really think about artists and the way artists work. And then also think about the future of work in quotation marks and the future of creative work. Um, and to me, um, I began to investigate uh, artificial intelligence and the ways in which um, right now as artists and really everyone is kind of, we have this amazing access to the internet and we can connect and talk to people all over the world, like when we're sitting in our bedroom. Um, but, uh, but then that, that also means that we're competing against so many other people. Right. And we're not only competing against so many other people, but now we're competing against so many other algorithms. Um, and these algorithms yeah, the, are... The algorithm is, 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 has been a theme for you yeah. at, at least over the last few years, for sure. Yeah, totally. So I'm, so I'm interested in, to, in trying to figure out ways in which we can harness the... Like we can create our own algorithms or we can better understand the algorithms of like large multinational corporations in order to sort of... Um, yeah, to not only like amplify our voices, but just basically like have some like somebody some information at the table that like um that can contribute to the discussion so it's not just like the limited number of dudes and a corporate headquarters somewhere you know um so yeah so it's really a process of sort of um talking about that technology and the potential of it um and using that technology as like a medium um so i started you go ahead do you see yourself doing collages uh about this pandemic going forward or about the sort of aftermath of of the whole thing? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, one thing that I'm interested in doing is I've been using um, like top trending Google search result, like images. Um, So I'll look and see like what the trending images for that day are and then use those in collages. Um, So it's a way to sort of like, yeah, to, to sort of begin to distill or pick out threads to stuff that's really contemporary. Um, and, and talk about what's happening in the now. 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know how anybody who is alive right now who creates cannot be like fundamentally affected by what's happening on like a cellular level, but then also in the way in which they just anything they put in the world is fundamentally changed. Man, I think that's a great place to end it. Colleen, I appreciate you. <laughs> yeah, of course. Thanks for thanks for thinking of me. I appreciate it. I like the laid back calm composure you got going on. I'm trying, man. No, no panic over here. <laughs> we, uh, you know, you know what we say. We never look in the rear view and wish we would have panicked more. Man, I never heard that before, but I like it. <laughs> well, you're welcome to borrow it. It is free and transferable. <laughs> I, I already do that anyway. I borrow all your quotes and tweets. <laughs> I love you, man. I'm, I'm trying to figure out uh, what's going on from a bunch of different people's perspectives. So I've just been reaching out to friends and and uh, uh, getting their perspectives, agreeing with them on some things, disagreeing on others, having my mind changed about some stuff. And I wanted to talk to you about mm. uh, civil liberties. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're, we're at a t- time where we're like just... Uh, um, and I understand why now seems like the perfect time to, to want to give up our, our civil liberties. Mm. And, and, and so, I mean, obviously when we're talking about civil liberties, we're talking about, about, uh, laws that are established for the greater good, you know, for, for the, the community. Mm. Um, I, I often think of, uh, the, 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 the first 10 amendments, the, the, the bill of rights as an example. And I just, right before I called you here, I pulled up the, the 10 amendments because you know we're familiar with like the first two as a society but then we don't ever think about like or maybe we know about dave Chappelle pleading the fifth uh, <laughs> on a, a skit or something but um i was looking at at these the just the first eight amendments and, and i can tell you that it seems to me that at least five of them are being totally trampled upon mm. right now and uh i just want to get your take on maybe we can go through a few a few of those but i wanted to get your take on on what this is doing to our our civil liberties in general yeah man well you know as cliche as it sounds one of the healthy things about hard times although we would wish them wish them upon no one is that they they force us to reevaluate in a new light the things that we take for granted and our freedoms are one of those things you know, it's it's interesting because people are speaking now more than ever about freedom as this thing that we have to really fight for. But as you and I have talked about before, freedom by its very nature is the kind of thing that you have to fight for. It's just that sometimes we're so comfortable that we forget that. We're, we're swimming in such a sea of luxury that we fail to remember how precious, how fragile, how delicate a thing that freedom is. But remember, in order for freedom to truly be free, then it has to be the kind of thing that I can voluntarily give away. You know, uh, it, you know, freedom is very similar to what um, James Carse, you know, says about play. He says that, you know, the first rule of play is that he who must play cannot play. Right? It's, it's not play if you're forced to do it. Right. And it's the same thing with freedom. Like, man, I, I feel the same way about fun. Like, like yeah, I um. I think of yeah, like a cruise ship to me sounds miserable because it feels like fun is a requirement of the thing. <laughs> right. Right. And, and anytime someone like like sort of just you know, blows a whistle and says you you must go have fun right now, it, it feels like a, a particular kind of of tyranny yeah. in a way. And, and and now what you're talking about is is 
us giving up freedoms voluntarily is is appreciably different from some overlord stepping in and saying, ah, we're going to take these away from you temporarily. Um, although, of course, history proves out that those temporary uh, removals of freedom, they often don't end up being temporary. Yeah. And, and, and Josh, I would say it, it's really always this way because I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning saying, hmm, how can I give away my freedoms? This is why studying history is so important. You know, I, I recently heard someone say something like, the scary thing is not that you could have a guy like Hitler with the beliefs that he had. The scary thing is that millions of people could be manipulated into thinking that he was the very guy that the country needed at that time. How did that happen? How did that occur? Mm. Uh, it, it, it always happens this way. It happens when people are afraid, when people feel vulnerable. Then and only then are people tempted to give up their freedom in exchange for easy answers or in exchange for promises of security. And so I, I would contend, you know, moments like this kind of force us to evaluate the foundations upon which this life that we love rests at all times. And, and, and it forces us to appreciate it. But here's another angle too, I would say. Um, another reason why, why these kinds of discussions and debates are very healthy for us is they they not only remind us that freedom is always the kind of thing that has to be fought for, but they also force us to think about what it means to fight for freedom in a way that's bigger than just debating the people who disagree with us or shouting at people with different political views on Twitter. Um, because for so many of us, we we believe that knowledge is power, but the only medium of expression that we have for that power is shouting at people who disagree. But what can we do to fight for our freedoms that go beyond just debating folks who are different from us on the internet? What are the things that we can do in our everyday lives on an individual level to defend our freedom and to enjoy the freedoms that we fight so hard to protect? To me, that's one of the most important questions that isn't really being discussed in a lot of the political shouting matches right now where people are making talking points and scoring, scoring, scoring points with their constituents. Well, where, where do we start? I mean, it, it feels right now that, uh, like I was saying, it, that giving up our freedoms voluntarily is is the right decision right now. You know, we're, we're all sort of self-quarantining. But but if I'm looking at, at these, uh, just going through some of these amendments to the Constitution, uh, I look at the First Amendment. And, and what is the, the first thing we have there? The, the freedom of assembly, right? And, and we're not allowed to assemble right now. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if I was a conspiracy theorist, I would say, well, it's a government plot to keep us from organizing. Mm. I, I don't think it, it even needs to be that nefarious, it, but it is still a right that is being taken away right now. Although I, I certainly don't want to assemble. I don't want to have a large crowd of people. Ryan and I canceled our, our, our tour or postponed it till November as, as a result because we want to do the responsible thing. But when someone comes in and says, hey, you're not allowed to meet with a group of people, I get a little bit worried. Yeah, so I, I think I think one of the most dangerous things that's happening right now is the tendency that so many of us have to respond to this crisis as if it means or should mean or must mean that we have to put our lives on pause until this stuff gets figured out. Because what that does is it strips humanity of its most vital and powerful incentive 
for creative and constructive action, and that is a sense of purpose. So when you take away everyone's jobs, you send everyone home, and people feel like, I don't know what I should do with myself, I don't know how to busy myself, I don't know what I can do, then people temporarily have their sense of purpose suspended, and then they're put into waiting mode. And that leads to greater anxiety. That leads to greater restlessness and greater insecurity and uncertainty. And when people are in that state where they are disconnected from their sense of purpose, it's not very difficult to get them to give away freedoms in exchange for getting back to life as normal. So I think one of the first levels at which we can fight for our freedom, and I know it sounds very indirect and apolitical, but I really believe in it. One of the first levels uh, where we can fight for our freedom is to get back grounded in the idea that this crisis is not a pause button that we push on life, but that it is a new context within which life must continue to go on. So for instance, my wife and I, we've been talking about the diary of Anne Frank lately. She's reading it. Um, and it was something that, you know, I, I engaged when I, when I was in high school, uh, she did as well, but she's reading it a second time now. And one of the interesting things about, the, about this story or, 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 uh, her diary, is that Anne Frank was living with um, about seven other people, and the backdrop of their lives was the Holocaust. They had to live every single day knowing that on any day, someone could discover them, and that could be the day that they die. And yet, they had everyday things take place, like, oh, it's someone's birthday. It's someone's birthday today. And this could also be the day where in the middle of celebrating that, someone discovers that we're here and we die. And yet they still had to find the strength and the resolve and the wherewithal to light candles on birthdays in the middle of the Holocaust. And that was the, the kind of thing that kept them alive and that made life meaningful and that gave them a sense of purpose. And if they can find the strength to light a candle on someone's birthday in the middle of the Holocaust, surely we can find the strength and the creativity to do that same thing in the middle of our situation. And I would say that's where the power lies. I, I would encourage anyone to read Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is, again, on that same topic. But I think we have to fight for our most fundamental right, which is to live with a sense of purpose, even in the midst of a crisis. And once we get that back and we wake up every day feeling like my freedoms actually matter because my actions make a difference, then we'll be incentivized to fight for our freedom. But if we've been stripped of our purpose and we don't feel like the things that we do make a difference or that we don't have anything to do, then we really don't have any freedom to fight for anyway. So why are we going to feel motivated to fight for it? Or, or that we can't do anything we're, we're, we can't. if we're feeling like we're forced. Yeah, I mean, talking about that, that's the that's the Fifth Amendment, right? No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law. And, and when I... When I think about that, in a weird way, it feels like many of us are being deprived of life, although what you're saying is we we don't have to be. Yes, there are some changes that are going on right now, and we have to adjust to circumstances, but it doesn't mean we can't live a meaningful life in the process. We don't have to put things on pause. And it, it, In fact, I, I would argue that that is always the case. We're always waiting for someday to, to mm -hmm. occur. But of course, someday is not a day of the week, but we, we continue to, to wait on it because, uh, if I just put it off till tomorrow, well, guess what? Tomorrow, there's always a new tomorrow. And that seems like, especially, 
uh, it especially seems like something we're doing right now where of course the world the world feels paused but we ourselves don't have to pause life we don't have to deprive ourselves of life yeah and, and i, I want to add one thing to that because i, I want to try to make this even more radical because someone could be listening to us and thinking okay that's kind of inspirational that's kind of motivational I, I, I guess I can tolerate a little bit of fluffiness in times like this, but, but I want to make the more radical claim that this is a mindset that has, that has considerable political impact. So, for example, one of the things that you, you and I have talked about before is how you can't motivate people to do the right thing by just appealing to some objective list of do's and don'ts without any higher point of reference. People aren't motivated by you saying you ought to be more responsible. You ought to fight for freedom. You ought to stand up for your rights. That doesn't motivate people. What motivates people is when they have some kind of mission that makes them come alive, right? Discipline is not self-generated. It comes from having a sense of purpose. What makes a person get up and run every day or a person study every day or a person practice the piano every day, even when it's boring and inconvenient, it's that they have a vision of life that makes them feel alive and they're willing to push through the hard times in order to fight for this thing that they deeply believe in. So when you have a mission, when you have something that makes you come alive, when you've got a reason to live and contribute value in your everyday life, it makes you willing to fight for that. So when we try to tell people, fight for your freedom, fight for your freedom, the best way that we can get them to do that is by reconnecting them with all the little seemingly meaningless things in everyday life. So I I recently wrote a post that said, if you had something that you were interested in before the COVID crisis, please don't forget about those interests. If you were really fascinated by music, keep making music, keep making art. Because by the way, when you look at the totalitarian regimes throughout history, what what did they fight against when they wanted to take people's freedoms away? You want to know what they outlawed? Mm. They weren't focused on academic books about politics. They weren't scared of that at all. They they outlawed things like jazz, bubblegum, pop music, blue jeans, Mm. because they knew that Art and creativity and fun and play, these were the things that gave people a taste of freedom. And once people taste freedom, they will fight like hell before they let you take it away from them. And what we have to remember is that if we want to incentivize people to fight like hell for their freedoms, we got to remind them to keep tasting the freedom, keep enjoying Keep enjoying good music. Keep enjoying good art. Keep enjoying good comedy and good jokes. Keep enjoying the things that make your life meaningful. That that is politically significant, not just motivationally significant. Man, I think that's the perfect place to end it. TK, thank you so much, brother. Thanks, brother. All right, before we get into our added value segment and our listener tips today, let me just say that if you want more of these quarantine conversations, you can find 40 of them over on the Minimalist Private Podcast. That's right. You're currently listening to our weekly minimal episode, but each week, Ryan and I, and and usually our guests, we record an entirely different, much longer, maximal episode on the Minimalist Private Podcast. This week, for example, Ryan and I are going to argue, actually, we're going to have a a private conversation in which we argue uh, about whether we should or when we should reopen the country and find our new normal. And 
I think we're going to disagree on some things, but we're also going to see whether we can find some common ground. That's why I think these private conversations are so important. There's a Venn diagram, and we're going to disagree about things. That's inevitable. We have different beliefs, but we do have similar values, and we try to hone in on those and find those values as well. I'm really looking forward to having that conversation with Ryan this week, a much longer, much more in-depth conversation. And you can listen to that conversation in hundreds of hours of previous private podcast conversations on the Minimalist Private Podcast. It's just two bucks, and it's the most honest way for this podcast to earn an income because we don't believe in advertisements. You know we think advertisements suck, so we make money only if you find value in and support what we create. By the way, when you subscribe to the Minimalist Private Podcast, you'll receive a personal link so that our maximal episodes play in your favorite podcast app. Find all the details and all the good stuff, and including, uh, including an additional podcast episode every week over at theminimalists.com slash support. Now, enjoy these voicemail comments and tips from our listeners. Hi, this is Katie from Glen Ellen, Illinois. Emily was asking for advice on how not to get seduced by new shiny things and then feeling guilty about buying them. I also have a problem with getting really excited about new shiny things. And what has really helped me reduce those impulse purchases is when I see something new and shiny, my immediate reaction is, yes, I want to buy this. Instead of throwing it in the basket or shopping cart, I will physically carry it in my hands while I continue to walk around the store and shop. This does two things. Number one, it helps me understand the physical bulk this thing will take up in my life if I buy it. It makes the idea of the true cost of living with this item much more tangible. And number two, by the time I'm done walking around the store, the initial high of wanting and then holding this new shiny thing has worn off. Carrying the item around in the store essentially tricks my impulse-motivated brain into thinking that I have purchased this item and the impulse has been satisfied without having to actually buy it. I have appreciated the object as much as was possible and then I moved on. Remember, uh, you can appreciate something without having to buy it or own it. My name is Tristan Wright. I'm calling from Melbourne, Florida. Ryan's comment about wanting to talk about the environment without being negative resonated with me. I have increasing concerns myself, and I'm changing and adapting, and part of me keeps this to myself so I don't come across as a self-righteous do-gooder on one hand. And then on the other hand, I don't like to bring it up because I don't want to be criticized when my efforts are less than perfect. One of the easiest and best things that my husband and I have done to affect change in our children is to take them to the dump. I know that that's really funny, but when they see and smell and experience the trash, it makes such a huge impact on them. Uh, the questions that follow have been really good, and it creates an ongoing conversation that leads to a lot of <laughs> different rabbit trails, but the virtues of just eating an apple rather than having applesauce packets. And it leads the conversation also into appreciating the mangoes that the neighbor gave you because they didn't even have to come in a truck from across the United States. Um, so we've been able to create these conversations, and it's been a really 
good thing for our family to help align with our simple lifestyle. It's the perfect opportunity to explain why we choose the best things that our money can buy, the fewest amount uh, that we can or the smallest amount that we can, and why we keep those things and we don't just constantly change and dispose of 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 things that have value. And I'm talking about things like couches and mattresses. We try and be intentional with our purchases. It's hard to think of things being easily disposed of when you witness the stacks of mattresses and couches and the birds pecking at them and you see that firsthand and it makes such a huge impact um, on me as an adult, but specifically the kids. All right, y'all. Thanks for listening today. Real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists. While Ryan and I have been quarantined in our homes, we're answering a lot of your text messages. And you can text us. It goes right to my phone, right to Ryan's phone, 937-202-4654. We answer as many of those questions as we can. And Quite honestly, we're answering almost all of them right now because we've had some extra time and I've had a lot of fun because I'm getting some questions I wouldn't typically get just through the podcast or even on social media. So you can text those questions to us. You can text pictures of you simplifying. Also, if you uh, join that text group, what we do is every Monday we send you a minimal maxim, a Monday morning minimal maxim to start your week off with a little bit of simplicity. If you'd enjoy that, 937-202-4654. Of course, we would never sell your information. We're not going to send you spam or junk or advertisements or anything like that. We just want to open up the communication via text message, and we've really been enjoying that so far. You can follow The Minimalists on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at The Minimalists. If you have a question, comment, or minimalism tip for our podcast, email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. You can comment on this episode at youtube.com slash theminimalists. And if you want our show notes in your inbox, sign up for our email list over at theminimalists.com. It's right there at the top. Just enter your email address. We'll also send you our simple Sunday emails each week. And for our added value this week, let's listen to a song called Obsidian from... Mixing Colors. It's the new album by Roger Eno and Brian Eno. And I think it's the perfect soundtrack for a not-so-dystopian future. If you leave here today with just one message, we hope it's this. Love people and use things, because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time.